ora koutou and welcome back to Aotearoa Unearthed, the podcast about New Zealand archaeology. I'm your host, Rosemary, back with a 10th episode in honour of Archaeology Week 2022. This episode is all about an amazing project that used archaeology, archival research and oral history to uncover the sites and stories of Fortress Northland in World War II. This project found evidence of 80 military camps across Northland that had mostly disappeared after the war. By uncovering long-lost public works department maps and recording interviews, the team revealed the immense scale of New Zealand and US military activities in Northland during World War II. I know about this amazing project because two of my colleagues in Heritage New Zealand Pohiri Tonga's Northland office in Kirikiri were part of the project. Bill Edwards, who's an archaeologist and the area manager of the Heritage New Zealand office, and Dr James Robinson, the Northland area archaeologist. But a huge amount of work was also done by two amazing volunteers, Dr Bill Guthrie and Jack Kemp. Bill Guthrie was a former professor from the University of Macau, who's very experienced in archival research. And Jack Kemp has a lifelong interest in World War II history and archaeology. Jack did a huge amount of research and 150 hours of oral history interviewing for this project. An interesting point is that all four of the team had a personal connection to World War II. Bill E and James both had fathers with distinguished war records. Jack's uncle was a pilot who died over the Channel in the Battle of Britain. Bill G's father built clinics for US Army Medical Corps in India and his father-in-law flew bombers in Guadalcanal. We did this as a big joint interview over Zoom and hopefully you'll enjoy hearing about the fascinating, often frustrating attempts to track down maps and sites as well as some of the amazing stories that the team documented. Bill E, can you tell me how this project came about? I understand that you have a bit of a personal family connection to World War II history. My father was a World War II veteran and was a prisoner of war in Poland for five years under the Nazis. During that time, he met a number of New Zealanders and as a result, him and my mother immigrated to New Zealand and hence I'm a New Zealander. And in terms of the Northland project, really I became interested My former manager, Stuart Park, used to be the director of the Auckland Museum. He and I would discuss these camps. We knew they were there somewhere, but we just couldn't find them. It's always been bugging me that these camps were somewhere in the landscape, but where were they? And what was the impetus for something to really start? Well, the impetus was Jack and Bill, really. We met them, and Jack was looking at doing some work in Santo, and I said to him, well, instead of going to Santo, why don't you go here? There's a whole range of uh, military history that no one's done any work on. That's how the project kicked off. So how did you meet Jack and Bill? (laughs) (laughs) I've known Jack for many years. These are ugly stories. (laughs) This will all have to be edited out. We've known each other too long. (laughs) And Bill I met when he was working for Heritage New Zealand down at the Kirikiri Mission. And I just instantly took a liking to Bill. If we start with Bill G, what did you know about World War II in Northland before this project started? Oh, gosh, nothing, as you can tell from my accent. I'm not really from here. I hide out as a Canadian. My father was in the U.S. Army during World War II, which he spent in India building hospitals. And uh, actually, the way I got into this had nothing to do with my knowledge, which is inconsiderable compared to Jack's and Bill's and James's. What happened was Bill and Jack reached an impasse that needed some work 
in New Zealand archives and fortuitously asked me because I had worked in British archives in London and in Oxford. And it turned out that these archives were organized in the same way, which gave us the eventual lead to where the documents were. We'll talk more about that later because I understand how difficult it was to find those archival records. Bill Edwards, could you give us a bit of background about why there were so many World War II sites in Northland? Hmm. Well, essentially, there was a planned invasion by the Japanese. And so the northern area was the obvious place. And the reason for Northland is it's got a series of sheltered coastlines. It's got good beaches. It's got good harbours. And it's got a very uh, low population density. So it had a number of things that meant it was really conducive to being invaded. And so what needed to happen in order to protect that was a defensive network of camps and installations to protect all the major harbours and the roads and ways into Auckland. And at what point do you think the New Zealand government became aware that invasion was an issue in Northland? Was it Pearl Harbour? Yeah, as soon as the American fleet was taken out, or most of it, uh, New Zealand was in a terrible position because essentially it was an isolated group of islands at the bottom of the Pacific uh, with a long coastline that was relatively undefended and all its major forces were off overseas. And Japan was a military juggernaut. It just steamrolled through Southeast Asia. So do you think there was a bit of panic then? Yes, a terrible amount of panic. And some of the stories that we've heard about that panic, uh, one of the most poignant stories was I was speaking to a woman who said that her father had arranged to have a gun to take them into a cave and fong around and shoot them if the Japanese invaded. It was very real. And so they have this situation where they're suddenly thinking we've got to defend this coastline. How did they pull that into place quickly? What kind of resources were they putting in place? Well, it's an incredible amount of resources were pumped in through the public works. It was remarkable what they achieved in such a short breadth of time. They also acquired property and used property through lease arrangements. An incredible amount of infrastructure being produced was an amazing feat. I don't think we could replicate it today. What do you think, Bill? By the time this project started, over half of the working age New Zealand workforce was in the army in Africa and Europe. And so the workforce wasn't there. It was easy to identify where people should go right away to do the defending because everything started at Kawakawa. Kawakawa was the county center and the railway went there and Highway 1 went there. That's almost walking distance to Opua. And so that had to be built up right away. The diversion of resources to accomplish this. There were 2,400 yep. structures yep. built in more than 80 camps. It was just unbelievable. And the most incredible thing about it for historical researchers like us is then it all disappeared. The contract terms under which well, the land was returned to original owners in original condition, which is why all the camps disappeared. Just to say, Rosemary, though, that a lot of those buildings were actually reused over in the Pacific. I understand part of this project was an inventory of all the sites connected to World War II. James, I'm wondering if you can tell me about some of all the different types of sites. As you know, we have 
80 camps in Northland, but you also have a range of defence establishments, mine stations, you've got gun emplacements, you've got radar stations, and you have lookout posts. The camps themselves were partly for the New Zealand Home Guard, but of course, a lot of the camps were used for training the Americans for Pacific fighting. At the time when they set them up in 41, Australia was being attacked by the Japanese. So New Zealand was the safest place in the South Pacific where you could do this training. So we have this sort of massive infrastructure trying to defend the undefendable north. Of course, there was lots of air force as well with the Waipakauri major air force base. And even the airport at Kaikoe. That's right, Bill. The Kaikoe one was actually a bomber airfield. So the Kaikoe airstrip is designed for heavy bombers, so you could use it to land 747s on very easily if you needed to. It's still there to this day. So we have this raft of infrastructure coming in through the fear of attack. And of course, then you get some ancillary sites like the maritime archaeology with the German raiders coming down before the Japanese got going and leading to setting a lot of mines, the sinking of the Niagara. There's a whole interconnected series of stories about what was going on between 39 and, say, 42, by which point New Zealand was a backwater as the war started to go the other way. James, I noticed you used that term, the undefendable North. Can you expand a bit on why it was so undefendable? What was difficult about it? It's literally got thousands of places where people could come ashore. You, know, you could put all your people at Taipa, but people could land on the next beach around and you'd never know. I mean, the obvious places like the Bay of Islands had integrated defensive minefields and a whole bunch of shore batteries, most of which were obsolete American ones. Of course, this particular defense of New Zealand was one of a series that happened right through the 1800s with various fears about invasion with the Chinese and the Germans and the Russians and so what was the approach taken to so many possible landing sites when they were deciding where to defend and how to do it? Oh, sure. That had to do with putting all their ships on the highest percentage location. New Zealand was a big place. Covering it by foot was going to be difficult. They were going to have to do the same thing the Japanese did in Malaysia, which was to confiscate local transportation and go down the roads. Of course, when we talk like that about a Japanese invasion, we talk as if we would have known what the Japanese had done. And we were we were lost in the fog down here in New Zealand to a great degree because the Japanese hit Hawaii, Hong Kong on the same day, Malaya and Singapore within a couple of weeks. And these places were just falling over that we here in New Zealand were thinking of as fortifications when we weren't fortified. When you look at the map, it's really easy to see why New Zealanders thought the war was coming here. We thought we were looking at an irresistible steamroller, and so we piled everything into the one most practical harbour. Jack, can you tell us about who worked on these defence sites? As you've said, a huge majority of the New Zealand workforce was already overseas. Yeah, it was mainly a lot of the, the Home Guard and, of course, a lot of soldiers training in New Zealand. A lot of training was done across Northland before soldiers actually went overseas. Can you just tell me a bit more about the interviews you did and what sort of memories people had of manning these sites and being part of the Home Guard and the Coast Watchers? 
I spent about 150 hours interviewing people. It was very, very interesting. And actually, the majority of them have passed now. One particular man, Tom Trigg from Kaitaia, he was a very interesting man. And he was in the Home Guard. His job was at Taipa to send signals in the nighttime with lights, messages up the beaches. There were Coast Watch people up the beaches, 90 Mile Beach. He spoke of what he did and the antics that he got up to, I guess, catching fish. And unfortunately, Tom passed away a week after I interviewed him. And he was 104. Another man I interviewed was Mr. Ray Cranch. He was in Auckland. He trained here in Paihia on howitzers and taught a lot of soldiers at the age of 18 in the area. And then he actually ended up in Madi in Egypt and then went on right through Italy. And when did the Americans come and help with the defence? Well, the Americans came over basically in 39-41. The camps were set up by the PWD, the Public Works Department, and the American Army were extremely appreciative of the camps that were built for them. A lot of the camps were race courses, places like that where facilities had already been set up, especially in the Walkworth area. There were many, many camps. We've got up to about 28 camps. All that remains today is basically the concrete slabs left on the ground. 1942, 1943, they were dismantled and sent over to the islands. Did anyone talk about how the people of Northland felt about all these Americans becoming part of Northland society? Maybe Bill could answer that one. Apparently, it went very, very well. The relations were very hospitable. Fortunately, the New Zealand soldiers had left nearly all their women here. We didn't really hear very much in the way of complaints. Indeed, I was interviewing one of the witnesses who she was a 16-year-old girl attending the dances. She was telling me about her boyfriend who had been a Marine from Montana, her great-granddaughter who was in her 20s. And the young woman was sitting there with her mouth just getting wider and wider open and said, Gran, you never told us this. And she said, this is the first time since the war I've told anyone. Why not? I didn't want anyone to think I was a loose woman. Bill G, I was wondering if you could talk a bit about why we don't see these sites today. What the government did was they wrote up a contract they gave everybody and said, We're taking your land, but we are renting it. (laughs) And we are going to pay you rent, and we are going to return the land to you to original condition when we're done using it, and we will pay for damages. It was written in that all of the infrastructure on the land was going to be removed because the construction was all public works department property and was reusable. And then accordingly, some of the landowners negotiated for real or perceived damages to be able to keep things like barns. But we hadn't known that when we started this project at all. We had no idea why it was all gone. And then Jack dug up the public works department history and scanned it all. And I read it and I said, well, look at this. They said they were going to take it all down. It wasn't one of our best moments. I want to tell you that. Oh, so you mean 
that for you as researchers that was a bit of a blow a, a bit of a blow wasn't it jack yes it was Bill. yes it was yes. <laughs> <laughs> well it was more of a blow to jack because i don't think there was any dirt road left in the far north that jack hadn't been down at talking to every old man and old woman where was the camp and they'd say it was over there and then some older person would say oh it wasn't over there it was over here we were all being driven nuts oh what did you do once you found that out well, to tell the truth, Bill had a temper tantrum. Me. Jack's laughing because he remembers. He said, I'm not going to work on this anymore until there are maps. I said, I've completely had it. This is silly. But I did go look for maps. <laughs> so what did the maps do once you found them? Oh, they were incredible. They were keyed to roads that were still there and towns that still existed, farm buildings and so on. In 99% of the cases, we could go right to the place where the buildings had been, especially for instance, if there had been a concrete pad and the farmer hadn't asked to have it removed out at Reef Point, out beyond Ahipada, there was a very remote station and we went out to look for that rather hopelessly. And the man who owned the property said, oh, that's what that is. I know where that concrete pad is. We use it for sheep shearing. Once we had the maps, we could walk right up to where the camps had been. The maps that Bill Guthrie found, these plans and drawings were all hand painted. And the information that they gave were absolutely incredible, right down to how many light bulbs camp had how many taps were put in place. And because of that, I could overlay, which uh, James Robinson helped me do, overlay them onto Google Earth, and we could pinpoint these camps absolutely precisely. Well, James, you are the archaeologist for Heritage New Zealand for Northland. I'm wondering if you can just talk a bit more about these sites, how they fit in terms of archaeology, because they're post-1900, so they're not archaeological sites. So Heritage New Zealand Pahari Taua Act provides legal protection for archaeological sites, but it has a sort of a cut-off date of 1900. So these sites are post-1900, so they are immediately protected. If you wish to protect something post-1900, you have to make a special case and put it to the Heritage New Zealand Board. Because there's so little infrastructure, there's very little structural archaeology left to protect. However, there are some rather worrying bits and pieces that are left. There are anecdotal stories about ammunition dumps being basically bulldozed, dig a hole, bury the ammunition and away you go. So especially with some recent residential subdivisions in Three Mile Bush Road, we did recommend the archaeologists have a look to see if there was anything going on like that. But I think what we do have is these stories. Every so often we get a story that came from some of the uh, interviewees. So, for example, there was a picture of this very distinctive Martin seaplane that was quite clearly had landed at Monganui Harbour. And so we managed to find some people who had met with these American pilots. So we don't need structural remains to tell stories about history. We need people. And hey tangata, hey tangata. Thanks, James. Yeah, I think the stories of people are so important. Um, Bill, I know there's a bit more to the story of the plane, so do you want to continue with that? 
Yeah, yeah, it was a lovely story. We found out that there was a young woman working at the post office and three dashing Americans came in and immediately invited her to dinner over at what is now Butler Point. The informant was her younger sister and she was queen of the playground for a week because she could tell all the details about the Americans. I mean, how dashing is that? Three pilots arrive on the quiet harbour in North and the post office lady is whisked off for dinner. Uh, Well, Bill, while I've got you on, can you talk a bit about the outcomes from this project? How are the public able to find out more about it? What we've done is one of our primary avenues for this material is Waitangi Display. It's proved to be very popular because people in the north immediately identified with these areas. We've got a series of large posters and we've put those up in libraries. We've also had a number of newspaper articles. Then the material has also been disseminated in the form of the heritage inventories. have been sent, all the material that's in the Auckland area has been sent to the heritage team at Auckland District Council. And What we've got to do now is, even though they're not archaeological sites under our Act, we're going to enter them into NZAA because that's the primary resource of which all councils and people look at before they do any development. Can you tell me, I know there's a museum exhibit now based on your work. Actually, I'm going to pass it over to Jack because Jack has been really involved with that exhibition as as Bill. It's an exhibition which is called Tora, Tora, Tora. Yes, Georgia Kirby, she set up Tora 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 New Zealand and what we have collected over the past few years are artefacts from Northland. Many of the artefacts are my own. She has also put together some great videos that have been collected over the years. Just for an example of an artefact is a a pokey machine from Kokoi which the Americans evidently brought there, and it's absolutely fantastic. So shall we move to the show and tell section, and perhaps if each of you could just tell me about a specific site, maybe a favourite site, and what you learnt about it. Maybe if we start with you, Jack. My favourite site, Rosemary, would have been in the Whangaroa Harbour. I found that absolutely fascinating. So Whangaroa Harbour was designated one of the harbours that the Japanese would come into as it was a deep harbour and would take a majority of the fleet if they arrived. There was a minefield set up across the, the narrow entrance to it. When you go there, you can still see the gun emplacements from Kingfisher Lodge, the navigation sites, spotlighting areas. And then across the harbour, there is also... If you walked up into the bush, unfortunately, it's private land. There's a two-storey bunker there, which was the observatory point where they could set the mines off. The interesting part was that was run by the Navy, and the, the Navy actually had no communication with the artillery across the harbour. They didn't really get on, I guess. What about you, Bill G? What was one of your favourite sites? My favorite site would have to be what for me was the most surprising, which was Sweetwater, which is in the sand dunes behind Lake Natu. The New Zealanders were conscious that they might get blindsided by the Japanese, like Singapore Harbor. So rather naturally, they set up a very clever counter-ambush station at what is now Waipapakore Ramp, and you would never ever figure out that there was a whole regiment 
of armored personnel carriers, of Bren gun carriers back there, that they patrolled the beach every day watching for a Japanese invasion that never arrived. What about you, James? I think my favorite place is actually at Whangarei Heads, and it's a gun emplacement with a pillbox with a viewing slit window. When they built it, they have to give the gunners angles to aim at. So they've painted a mural of what they could see on the outside, and then they put angles for the gun underneath them. And in the 1990s, the Department of Conservation got the daughter of Sir Edmund Hillary from the Auckland Art Gallery to come and, and rehabilitate this mural before it fell off. So it's actually art from World War II that's quite unique and special. Apparently the gun only fired three times. The commando actually built a little lean-to at the back for his car. So they fired a half-powered shell up the harbour, and then they, that went reasonably well. And then they turned the gun to the right and they fired a full-power shell out towards Ocean Beach. And apparently the recoil caused the prefabricated garage to collapse on top of the commander's car. So in other words, we had something quite unique and special that's still there to this day. And you can go and walk out to Whangarei Heads and see this. And what about you, Bill Edwards? What's one of your favourite sites? Well, one of the favourite sites for me is the Kaikoua Aerodrome. It was a huge, great big airfield that was set up if bombers were needed. Luckily, they were not needed. And so you go into this very quiet area and there's a monstrous airfield there. And you look at it and you go, you know, that would make a wonderful international airport. You could have large jets landing there. And a tranquil scene with cows and totara trees growing around it now. It just shows you the amount of infrastructure that was put in place during these years where we thought New Zealand was under threat. And I'm wondering if someone can talk about the defences at Waitangi as well, because for me, I always think of Waitangi as Tatiriti, the birthplace of nationhood, and yet I understand there was a lot of defences at Waitangi. Yeah, it was called the box. And basically the idea was that the box was a command centre, that if someone came into the box, you could defend it. So Waitangi was the area where all intelligence was gathered and all commands were taken. It's not actually at the Waitangi Treaty Grounds, but it's where the golf course is at the moment. And when we went there, we had the map, and it was wonderful because you stand there and you see all these little roads, and they don't go anywhere. But once you have the map, you can actually understand why it was there. So Waitangi was a really pivotal place in the defence of Northland. And I'm wondering if one of you can tell me about the actual defences and armaments and guns and weapons that New Zealand had available to them for this defence of Northland. I can't imagine it was that vast. For a start, they had planes called the Vicar Wildebeest, which were very, very ancient aircraft. Aircraft in New Zealand was virtually nil, and they were biplanes. But later on, we had P-38s, P-40s, those sort of planes that came in. They had them set up, the Wildebeest as torpedo planes, for the Japanese naval onslaught. Fortunately, they didn't arrive. The uh, Wildebeest couldn't have stood up to any kind of airplanes the Japanese had. One of the reasons that the New Zealanders got into conference with the Americans basically on December 9th, 1941, was because they realized they were being cut off by the Japanese from Britain. This, by the way, is related to our coastal gunnery problems. I don't think any coastal gun in New Zealand had more than about six shells because the guns came from anywhere. 
there were a couple of old British guns, and so they ransacked warehouses for a couple of shells from them. There were a couple of guns from old American naval vessels. There were no supplies, but they built the guns anyway, I think, hoping that some shells would arrive. I think one of the interesting things, Rosemary, the famous sinking of the Niagara with the mines laid by the German cruisers, was that Niagara had not only got the gold on board, but it had half of New Zealand's reserves of small arms ammunition mm. that was going off to England to support the British. So when Bill and Jack were interviewing people, there was a common thread of they had a lot of training and three bullets. We didn't have any ammunition. If we do the digging deep section now, I'm wondering if we can talk about the process of how you actually did this research. If we start with Bill G and you could talk about this archival process of research and the frustrations and discoveries along the way. The problem was that we knew there were maps out there, but we didn't know where they were coming from. The councils had a few copies, but they were mainly in very bad shape. We kept trying to chase them down. Nobody knew where they were. I had an interview with the invaluable local historian, Mem Ringer, about her collection of documents about the camps in the Whangarei area. But what she was interested in was administration. And so what she had was a collection of receipts. In the middle of this collection of receipts, there was a map of one of the camps. What we had noticed, there were old style handwritten archival numbers on each one of the sheets. And this map was in the same order of numbers as the receipts. So that was our first hint that these maps had not been lost. They were filed with the receipts for the camps. When I got home, I rang Manukau Archives. We drove down there. Sarah Matheson met us with several of the folders and said, is this what you're looking for? And the first one she opened up was the hand watercolored map of the Fongaroa gun emplacements and we were breathless. But we had to go through the receipts to pull the maps out. So was this a case that you didn't know where the maps were? Had they just been lost? Yes, Peter Cook said New Zealand historians had been looking for these maps for 50 years. Oh, wow. Well, you must have been excited. <laughs> we were. We were very excited. And I'm wondering if either James or Bill E can tell me about the on-site surveying, so the archeological side. What did you do? Uh, we started with the maps using Google Earth and existing and named roads, basically working out where these maps fitted on the ground and then changing their scale so that they actually matched the reality. Once we had done that, then a number of these sites were visited. For example, in Three Mile Bush Road, where I went with Jack, what we found, there was nothing left. So what we have ended up with is that for the most part, it's an archival research documents that we've got. We know where they are on the ground. If someone has buried a whole lot of unfired ordnance, they will be somewhere within those areas. We have anecdotal evidence where that's supposed to be, but it's not been proven. I mean, I think the reality is that there was so little ammunition that they weren't going to be throwing anything away. Chances are everything was packed up and taken away for reuse. You know, any of that material would have been of value. I actually wanted to ask about that next. Can you tell me about this process of interviewing? How did you find the people and what kind of stories did they tell you? Oh, very, very charismatic people. Absolutely fantastic people. Just amazing to talk to. Very humorous as well, I found, and just pleased to be alive, basically. 
Is there anything else you'd like to mention before I stop this recording? I would like to say one thing about this. Most Kiwis managed to forget the fact that New Zealand was essential to winning the war in the Pacific. New Zealand offered the Americans basing when there was no place else to go in the South Pacific. Without that, they would have had to have been crossing the Central Pacific, the Eastern Pacific, with every operation. And if the Americans hadn't begun counterattacking right away, what does history tell us the Japanese were doing? They were digging into and fortifying every island. And because of that, the Allies were able to begin pushing back immediately after these southern islands were conquered. It was essential to defeating the Japanese basic plan, which wasn't so much to conquer the Pacific as it was to take the Eastern Pacific and Southeast Asia and make peace with everybody else who would then agree that they got to keep it. They never meant to take Australia and New Zealand. They meant to have America, Britain, Australia and New Zealand agree that they got to keep everything else. And once again, it shows how those Northland bases part of a big international story. It's not just a local kind of... Well, at the same time New Zealand was building these bases, American forces were already secretly being integrated into New Zealand resistance operations and into New Zealand training. Omaha Beach in particular was used for practice landings. Mm -hmm. There was a very secret inter-service American unit that landed there and worked with New Zealand Army and shipbuilders to develop landing craft. They were essential to the beach landings, but this is a very secret part of the story. Mr. Guthrie, would the fact that it was at Omaha Beach and then they used the term the Omaha Landings for D-Day be any connection? You are setting me up for this because you know the answer. Okay, Omaha is a Maori word. It's an old name for the beach. Omaha Beach in Normandy was because that was the name of uh, an American state capital city there. And it's entirely by accident that they had beach landings both places. Isn't that amazing? <laughs> That's a crazy coincidence. Okay, well, is there anything else? I'd like to make one last point, please. That, you know, Bill and his predecessor, Mr. Stuart Park, instigated this project, but that Jack and Bill, like an old married couple bickering, managed to produce the most amazing amount of research. You weren't supposed to betray that secret. I know, but I had to. And I'd just <laughs> like to say how much we have respect for both Jack and for Bill and their wonderful, diverse knowledge and research skills and i think that we're, we're just so lucky to have them and thank you guys so much for helping us yes it's really quite amazing that you both did that as volunteers oh we've got designs we've got the french now <laughs> oh that's right you've got the next project on the go that's right i heard about that thank you so much to bill edwards james robinson bill guthrie and jack kemp for doing this interview with me as always, I had a wonderful time chatting with my interviewees for the Aotearoa Unearth podcast, and I really love learning about the history of Northland's World War II experience and sites. This podcast is a joint production by Heritage New Zealand, Pohiri Tonga, and the New Zealand Archaeological Association. If you enjoyed it, we've got nine previous episodes on Spotify or iTunes. Ka kite.